So tonight I want to talk about God. Which is a problem for a Buddhist. <laughs> One of the first books I read on Buddhism was called What the Buddha Taught by Wapola Rahula. And he said in that book, for self-protection, man has created God, on whom he depends for his own protection, safety, and security, just as a child depends on its parent. According to Buddhism, our ideas of God and soul are false and empty, period. More or less seems to have dispensed with the whole issue. I want to tell you some of my own spiritual history tonight. As I asked you to do with each other yesterday, turn about is fair play, as they say. So I was raised as a Roman Catholic um, and was somewhat devout. Uh, I, I became an altar boy, and uh, this was when the Mass was in Latin, so I didn't know what I was saying. I would say things like, Adeum quilitificat, juventu de meum, quius tuus deus, fortitude de mea, quare mea, replistic inquiries, justus incedo de mefligit mea amicus. And I had no clue what any of those sounds meant, but I loved the sound of it. And I loved being part of this ritual, and the incense and the bells and the priest with the host and the pouring the wine and the water, that whole mystery. So uh, some part of me was touched and awakened in my childhood by that. And part of me was completely untouched by it. So that when I became a teenager and uh, was presented with um, the logic uh, of atheism, I completely accepted that and uh, rejected Catholicism and God uh, altogether for several years. And, and that was also the period when I was beginning to drink and use um, and also uh, experienced depression for the first time. So, uh, you know, my world completely changed, as I'm sure it did for most of you, maybe all of us when we become teenagers. Um, such a tricky, <laughs> at best, transition. Um, but there was certainly still some longing in me which soon became manifest. Uh, you know, it was the 60s, and you know, I remember hearing the Beatles going to India and learning Transcendental Meditation, and I said, I want to, I want to learn, that, learn that. And it, what I thought it was was a um, magical state of bliss that would transport me and um, really fix all the things that were difficult in my life. Um, but I didn't 
really get around to actually doing it for about 10 years after first hearing about it. Uh, I was kind of busy um, staying high, which does, does tend to take up all your time and money and energy. Um, but, uh, you know, I was drawn to all the things that were kind of coming along. Uh, I remember reading Edgar Cayce, people who know who he was, a psychic, and uh, being fascinated by that. Um, got into astrology, as many people did in those days. People don't ask you what your sign is anymore. Uh, don't know why, but um, that's gone out of fashion. Um, I actually got interested in, um, I read the book Dianetics, which is the, the basis of Scientology when I was 18. I was living in a mental hospital at the time, so uh, I'm not sure I was really a reliable you know, decision maker. But, uh, but I was very interested and went to uh, several classes until they said, in order to become a clear, which I understood to mean enlightened, you had to pay them $1,500, which was in 1968 dollars, probably about half a million dollars now. I mean, it, was, it, it might as well have been for my, my economy was uh, in the two figures at best. Um, and, and, uh, but part of me also, the, the, you know, one of the things I can say is, and I think is important to acknowledge is the, the little bits of wisdom I can see that were in me that we all can see that we're in us, even as we, the larger delusion was maybe running things. But um, there was a part of me that said, this is wrong, asking me for like a lot of money in order to have a spiritual, um, do some spiritual work. Um, by the time I got into my 20s, um, I had really settled into a, a marijuana and, and a beer habit, which it, it really you know, may have saved my life because in my late teens, um, I, was, I didn't have habits. Uh, I just took everything I could get my hands on that I could tolerate emotionally. So I had a long run on speed, long run on downs, and, and episodes of uh, mixing things that aren't supposed to be mixed. If they had been legal, they would have had a warning on the side that said not to mix them. But um, not that that would have stopped me. That would have been an encouragement, right? Oh, these, don't, these are supposed to cause trouble when you mix them. Let's see what they do. And I remember, uh, some of you might remember, or you know, as they say, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. But um, in the summer of 1969, when Woodstock happened, which I did attend briefly, I had to... I had to borrow a car. It was my brother's friend's car, and he left it with me for the weekend so that I could drive it around town. <laughs> Woodstock was a, not exactly around town, but you know, it was on the same coast anyway. You know. And it broke down on the way home. So anyway, I had to lie a little about that to him. I think I eventually told him, or my brothers might have told him. I think he actually was proud of it like 30 years later. Wow, my car went to Woodstock. <laughs> uh, but that summer, there was a shortage of marijuana, which is ironic, you know, given the, the times. It was a terrible 
a drought. And I, the, <laughs> that's what we called it. <laughs> that wasn't even one of my punchlines. But I remember breaking up uh, a Darvon. Remember, those, are, those were a pain pill before they had uh, Vicodin, the good stuff. Uh, breaking up a Darvon and putting in a pill and, and a pipe and smoking it. You know, that was kind of the kind of stuff you would do, you know, because there were, there were needs to be met. <laughs> and once you'd scraped all the resin out of the pipe, you had to find something else to put in it. So, uh, you know, my higher power was, was drugs and alcohol. I had turned my will and my life over to drugs and alcohol and women. Uh, and the pursuit of women is more probably likely because it's not like, well, anyway, they weren't always there uh, the way drugs and alcohol always were. Um, and uh, so, so really, um, that's what I trusted in. That's what I expected to take care of me. When we say turn our will and our life over to the care of God, I expected drugs and alcohol, and they did take care of me in a certain way. And, and I've heard many times people say in meetings that alcohol saved their life, you know, their drinking saved them from, from killing themselves or whatever. I, I don't know if I would have killed myself, but, but uh, you know, it, that was my antidepressant. I mean, I had spent a lot of, you know, my whole teenage years I was in therapy, you know, culminating in a, in a period in a mental hospital, and at the end of which I went in being depressive, and I came out having panic attacks. So I got worse uh, in the hospital, and, and so I really had lost faith. The, you know, therapists were my higher power at one point. I mean, I wanted them to be, and they, they didn't satisfy my needs. Uh, I, I didn't know what to do in therapy was the problem. But um, I, um, I just lost it because I guess I was in the 60s, so. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, in any case, I, I settled into this sort of habit of drugs and al of marijuana and, and beer with my main things during, during my 20s. And, and at that point, I'd become a musician. I was playing in bars, and, and I would have to be able to stand up straight at 1 o'clock in the morning and move my fingers around the fretboard of my guitar. And so that kept me from being overly intoxicated. You know, I couldn't take a bunch of lewds and some acid like early in the evening because, you know, I wouldn't get paid at the end of the week. And that had become important to me. Um, so, so I kind of w was really in this maintenance period f for some years uh, where I really lost all connection with anything that seemed remotely spiritual. I mean, there was some, still some small voice in me that was hungering, but um, really didn't know what to do. And, um, you know, I was on the road in 1976 playing in South Hill, Virginia. It was uh, over the 4th of July at the Bicentennial playing in a Ramada Inn. And um, somehow I had a book by Alan Watts that was something about how to meditate. And at that point, one of my like, positive things then was that I was jogging. So I, would, I went out and jogged around this red clay track behind a high school in South Hill, Virginia, and came back to my you know, green telephone company van 
and opened the side doors and sat down and opened the book and read a couple sentences about how to meditate, closed my eyes. I don't know how to do this. I can't forget it. And that, that was it, about 30 seconds, if that. And I just gave up. I just couldn't get it. So, But um, it was still kind of back there. And uh, a year or so later, I had moved to New York and was living with my brother and an old friend of mine, Tony Kubek. Um, wow, Tony Kubek? No, Mike Kubek. I'm getting mixed up with the shortstop from the Yankees. Tony Kubek with the shortstop. Michael Kubek was my friend. Okay. Uh, Yankee fans will know what I'm talking about. John's looking at me like, oh shit, where is this guy going tonight? Came by my brother's, that was completing the sentence, came by my brother's uh, loft in Brooklyn and, and he was doing TM. And he was really into it. He was teaching TM. He was like, you should do TM. I was like, yeah, I want to do it. He was like, yeah, it just costs $150. I was like, okay, it's getting closer now. <laughs> you know, if I had a job or any money, I might have done it then. A year later, I was in Vermont. I got around in those days. Uh, never lived anywhere for probably more than six months in my 20s. Um, maybe I did. I don't want to lie. I'm not sure. But it was short term most of my housing and homes. I was in Vermont, I was in a band that, that had kind of a spiritual component. We did African-based music, um, really remarkable. It was, and the, the band and the music were kind of part of the stirrings. You know, it was kind of reawakening my spirituality. We were doing this really mesmerizing, beautiful music, and the spirit of the band was very uplifting and all this positive stuff, you know. I mean, when I came to the band, the first night, I'd been playing disco, and I had my, uh, you know, I had on my peach-colored uh, um, polyester shirt with my polyester kind of pants, uh, and they were, like the leader of the band, who was from Nigeria, was wearing these robes, and. He had gold teeth, and the lead singer was kind of androgynous and was wearing sort of a shorty top that was kind of he bought in the women's department. And the, the bass player was like was a leather smith, and he had all these leather jackets and fringe and all this stuff. And I was like, I think I need a new wardrobe. You know? It was kind of embarrassing. Uh, but uh, the lead singer wanted to learn TM, and, and there was a TM center in Burlington, in Vermont. And uh, so we went there, and, and uh, I raised the 150. No, you know, I got him to let me do it for 100. I remember now, that's right. I was like, I can't quite afford it. Okay, we'll let you do it for 100. And I learned TM uh, the fall of uh, 1978. And that was my first real experience of meditation. And the thing was that I had to quit smoking pot for two weeks to, to learn it which was the other problem I didn't mention. There was the 150 and then there was the not smoking pot for how long? <laughs> Two weeks? I had not gone 24 hours without marijuana in nine years at that time. So this was a major surrender. 
this, this very surprising thing to me was that when I stopped smoking pot, I found I had a lot of energy. <laughs> I'm not sure why that was, but uh, I found a quick solution. They had said nothing about drinking. So I simply drank more for those two weeks and suppressed the energy. And I started, you know, uh, something I inherited from my father was, was uh, routine. Uh, my father got up the same time every morning, took a shower every morning, and went to his office. Strange the way corporations ran in those days. He worked for the Bethlehem Steel Company. He was a patent attorney. And, and, uh, but apparently he still had to punch in because my brother said he once saw my father's like time card where he always arrived within three minutes of eight o'clock in the morning. You know. So he was a very routine man, which was something I really did not want to follow, but of course found myself following and, uh, in various ways, like counting the number of tokes of pot I would have, you know, and just being, you know, spreading out my drinking in, in this very controlled way. I put quotes around controlled for the tape. <laughs> and so TM, they said, meditate 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening or the late afternoon, and that's all you have to do. And you will realize cosmic consciousness after a while. Um, sounded perfect. I mean, it fit my agenda perfectly. Just do this thing and you'll be fixed. You know, there was no, nothing about changing your lifestyle. They didn't say you couldn't go back to smoking pot. At least I didn't hear that. Um, there was nothing about uh, really lifestyle, <laughs> what, we, what I would call now precepts. Um, so it was great. And I just started to do that, and I did it sometimes. And in the morning when I did my TM, it was always before I got stoned. And actually, um, I smoked... I stopped being a daily pot smoker. I was a weekly pot smoker, but I wasn't a daily pot smoker anymore. Um, and um, sometimes in the evening, I would be under the influence of various things when I did my 20 minutes, but I did it. And that was what was important. It wasn't important what happened. It wasn't important that I get anything out of it or that I remember my mantra or anything. All that was important was to sit down and do your 20 minutes as far as I was concerned. Uh, a limited, you know, it was a limited <laughs> program, for sure. Uh, and I told you the other night about the, the drunken night when I woke up the next day and realized I should do Buddhist meditation now because of my girlfriend. So that was my progression into Buddhism. Um, and w when I got into Buddhism, it was... There, a lot of it, a lot of the thread of what was happening was, I'm not getting fixed by this TM. I'm not getting fixed by the rest of my life. I need to meditate more. You know? And so, as I told you the other night, you know, I, my, the first year, I, you know, I went on a five-day retreat. Then I went on a three-day retreat a couple months later. Then a three-week retreat in the spring of 1981. And then in the fall, I went on a three-month retreat. At the end of the three-month retreat, I was disappointed that I had not attained enlightenment. <laughs> I was not fixed. I didn't have a job. My girlfriend, who had also gone on the retreat, was no longer my girlfriend. I didn't have a place to live. Um, and I went through something that 
may sound familiar, rebuilt my life over the course of several months, uh, which is something I had to do several times. Uh, but that was probably the first time that I had to kind of rebuild, had to stay with a friend who let me crash with him and look for a job. And, you know, the economy wasn't really great then. Thank God that time has passed. Uh, and the, you know, finally I put my life together. I got in a band. I got a job. It was like really nice. You know, I was working in a spiritual bookstore. Um, you know, my life was starting to make sense again. And then one day, this guy walked into the bookstore and he changed my life, <laughs> unfortunately. He called himself Ananda and he looked like you or me, uh, was dressed like a Westerner. He was American. And in a brief conversation, he told me that um, he had been pulled to that bookstore by my energy that he was doing his laundry down the street, but that something had pulled him there and it was me. And that if I wanted to become enlightened, did I want to become enlightened? Yes, I did. And that he could arrange that within six months if I would come with him. He, I, naturally, I invited him to stay at my house since he didn't have anywhere to stay. And he stayed there for a couple of days and cleared, cleared me up about things like how Buddhism was really just a worn-out religion that the energy had been drained out of it. And that, in my, that, that there's this kind of tube of energy, this kind of aura above us, and that in here was this old Buddhist guy who was blocking my energy from really coming out and me becoming enlightened. And he would help me get rid of that guy and, you know... Uh, and so, you know, he did some, uh, some practices that he mixed a lot of things together. He was very eclectic, and he did some practices which were sort of hyperventilating, and I passed out and came out, and I felt really high, so it seemed like it was really going to be a good practice, and I felt like this was definitely the way to enlightenment. Um, and he kind of left town, and then he came back, he said, and after the, he left for a while, like a week or two, and... and sort of mysteriously went off, and he was traveling with this young, attractive woman who had a car. And um, when he came back, they stayed with me for a couple of days, and then he was like, well, we have to leave, and if you want to come, you can come, and you, you know, you need to come, and we'll make this, all right, we'll make, we'll help you make the decision. I was living uh, in Central Square in Cambridge, and we walked down to the Charles River, and he said, okay, to make the decision about whether to go, write down yes on one piece of paper, and no on the other piece of paper. And then Ask yourself, should I go and hold the, each piece of paper and feel the energy? <laughs> and the energy that's lightest is the one you should follow, of course, because the light energy is taking you to the light, it's lifting you up. So it happened that the one that I opened was, yes, I should go. So, okay, let's go. I packed up the next morning. I called my boss, said, uh, I have to quit. Can I pick up a check? Okay. I went over. On the way out of town, I called the band leader. Uh, I have to leave. Uh, I'm not going to be at the gig tonight. <laughs> Goodbye. And left. Left my apartment. Left my belongings. Um, and traveled around on faith. Uh, at one point, we were in New Mexico, and he dropped me off on the side of the road and said, meet me in Boston in three days. 
and drove off. And I had no money. I had my guitar, which turned out to be the best thing for a hitchhiker to have, because people kind of trust you if you have a guitar. Um, and I traveled across the country on faith. So it was working. It was very powerful. It was very powerful, actually. Um, but one thing, and one thing that Ananda uh, restored in me was a belief in God. And um, it was very magical, powerful, energetic, all that. And he did all sorts of Kabbalistic things and Hindu things. And, um, uh, but I started to believe in God, uh, which I hadn't really done in a long time. And I started to pray to God. And uh, after two months with him, I bailed out. I couldn't handle it. Um, and I wound up homeless on the streets in, in Venice Beach. And, um, and I had to rebuild my life again from scratch. And it was even harder this time. Months of living in a sleeping in a friend's van. I wasn't living in it because she had to go to work. <laughs> she and her husband had to go to work in the morning, so I had to get out of the van in the morning. So really living on the streets of Venice and um, and just uh, fortunately, I had some friends, and they really saved my, saved me from, you know, ending up the way people end up when they don't have anything. Um, and I rebuilt my life again, and, and it was really at that time that was the, my first. Well, it was one of my bottoms. It was I would say my worst bottom emotionally and spiritually, and, uh, and there was a tremendous sense of. Um, loss and failure uh, and uh, fall from grace. Uh, you know, I had lost my Buddhist practice and then, you know, obviously I didn't have what it took to become enlightened through this other path that I really believed in, actually. I really kind of bought it. Uh, and, and that was very much a cultish mind. The people who are drawn into cults are people who don't have a sense of their own inner strength, and they believe that someone else has to take care of them. They have to be uh, fathered or mothered by someone. And, and uh, you know, so I really just felt this terrible sense of abandonment and, and loss. But the good thing was that all I wanted, after a little while of living on the street, all you want is some comfort. Just, you know, you, you start to really appreciate a meal, a beer, <laughs> a joint, a girlfriend, a house, a bed, your own bed. And so because I wanted those things, I realized I had to do the things that it takes to get those things. So I actually, that was actually the beginning of my coming around to seeing that it's through my own actions, through the law of karma, that my life changes. So I rebuilt my life to the point where I had all those things and was drinking alcoholically again and smoking dope as an addictively again, using women uh, addictively again. And that was all good news in a way, you know, because I was back to like at least zero <laughs> I wasn't less than zero anymore. And from zero 
you know, the karmic consequences of all of that, you know, of all of that hunting was that I got led to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, you know, I, I, I can say that once I got sober in AA, I never slipped. But if I look at my life, it was a one long attempt to control and slip after slip. Uh, but that day, when I woke up that day, knowing that I wasn't going to drink again, it was a tremendous relief. And I felt so, I felt happy, really. Um, and at that point, my Buddhist practice was there in a very embryonic way. And, and I had done a significant amount of practice over one, the course of one year. I had done about four months of retreat in one, in one year, but that was several years before. So all of the energy of that was gone, but not all the insight and all the potential that that could build, be built on. In any case, I went into AA and I saw God and I was like, okay, God, sure, I got that. I've done that with Ananda. Meditation, I've got that with Buddhism. So I, I kind of felt like, oh, I can do this. But I wasn't really thinking, I didn't say, okay, now I'm just going to jump back into my Buddhist practice. Really, it, I started to realize that, that you know, I'm 35 years old and I don't have a life. I need to have a life. And I was learning that lesson that you have to have a self before you can let go of yourself. And in the, in the broadest implications of that, that you've got to have a, a life before you can let go of yourself. And... Uh, so my first few years of sobriety, I just kind of floated on the momentum of my previous spiritual life and focused mostly on getting a job, um, going back to school, learning how to relate to uh, my, my desire for a partner, both sexual and life partner, in a way that was wholesome. And that was one of the big things. We could spend a whole other evening on that, for sure. Um, or a whole other retreat. Maybe we will. Um, but in any case, you know, I, I, I kind of, I kept my practice. I was, each year I would go on like a three-day retreat. <laughs> that's, how, that's how tenuous my, my connection with Buddhism was. And, and partly that was because now my life was kind of more structured, like I had a job. And I had responsibilities, and I couldn't take a long three months off. I mean, when I went on a three-month retreat in 1981, I worked as a dishwasher and, and lived with my parents for the summer, and then when I didn't have enough money, begged them to give me the rest of the money to go on the retreat. You know, it wasn't like you know, something I like, you know, put together. It was just like a... So, uh, so now I was kind of living in a more realistic uh, Way striving for the middle class that I had rejected so vehemently, um, and but as often happens, people in recovery, um, that initial kind of just surrender and spiritual surrender as well as just life surrender, uh, the energy of that, the momentum of that, slowed and and kind of died out. And what happens to some people, and I've seen this with many people, is that they go into this spiritual crisis. 
sometime between five and 10 years sober, 10 to 15, who knows? People throughout, the, I don't know how. It can happen though, right? And there, where all of a sudden that magical higher power isn't working anymore, but there's no replacement. And that's a very dangerous place. And I was very fortunate that when that magical higher power kind of ceased to be convincing for me or, or real enough for me, there was Buddhism. And I knew I could trust that. And I didn't really care anymore about, you know, praying or God, or whatever. I kind of went through a transition on one retreat where I just sort of let go of the word God. And I mean, I kind of explored it, but, you know, I sat on a longer retreat um, after I moved up north. That's at six years sober, I moved to Berkeley to finish my degree and went on a self-retreat the following summer. And, um, and on that retreat, which was about a week, I started to really go, I was praying for a couple days. And then after about the third day, right about this point in the retreat, praying, saying, God or our Father started to feel really artificial. It just felt like, oh, that just, you know, I'm just here. I'm just, there's just presence here. There's me and there's other and there's, but it's all one thing. There's no like, there is no God out there to pray to right now. It did, I didn't feel a God. And I, in the past, I had felt I was praying to a God. And that was okay because that was coming through the experience of feeling so connected that there was no, that the word God felt unnecessary. It felt superfluous to the experience. This, it was just, this is the pure experience of being. And there's no need to add a word or, or a dialogue. A dialogue, it felt, uh, you know, it was dualistic. And, that, and I wasn't having a dualistic experience. So that was the moment, that was the turning point when I realized, okay, something else is starting to happen now. And over the succeeding years, uh, you know, I had arrived, you know, I came to Berkeley. As people in L.A. were like, you're going to love Berkeley. And they were right. Uh, you know, this Buddhist scene in L.A. was kind of scattered, and, and there wasn't a strong uh, center or a strong teacher um, that I could felt I could really connect with their trust. And when I came to Berkeley, immediately started to connect with the teachers here and, and started to go on retreats with the, uh, you know, the founder, people who wound up founding Spirit Rock. And, and, um, and th then, and I also started to discover other people who were in recovery who were into Buddhism. And I had never, I had always thought I was the only sober Buddhist. And, which was, you know, another one of those unique things, you know, worked, worked really well for me. Um, but, uh, you know, I started to realize, like, there's, this, is, uh, got, this has got to work somehow with Buddhism, you know. Um, but I wasn't sort of in a hurry to figure that out, but things were starting to open up. Little things were starting to open up, like that time that I talk about in my book about going on retreat with Ruth Dennison, and then she said to me, "Well, you're, you're at." When I said I'm really feeling this commitment and faith in Buddhism, now she said, "You're at the third noble truth, which is the truth of the end of suffering, the realization that it's possible to end suffering." And my friend who was with me later on said, 
well, that's just like the second step, came to believe. You know? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Wow, I guess we could start to connect these things. So that was the beginning of the connection for me. I was going to talk about God. <laughs> so I'm going to do that now. So I, I, I want to t- tell you some of the things that I've come to as an understanding of what God means now to me. And one of the key, uh, one of the keys for me for getting this was Ajahn Buddha Dasa and him saying that there are four aspects to God. Nature, the laws of nature, the responsibilities that humans have in relation to the laws of nature, and the fruits of fulfilling those responsibilities. The laws of nature is the most obvious aspect of a higher power. We can say that karma is the most obvious law of nature that is a higher power. The truth of suffering is an aspect of nature. The truth of impermanence is an aspect of nature. I'm going to read some of my definitions. In my new book, uh, I, at the beginning of each section, and the sections are called the higher power of karma, the higher power of suffering, the higher power of mindfulness, etc. So at the beginning of each section, I have a little definition of that higher power. The higher power of karma brings results from actions based on the moral fabric of the universe. It is the force behind addiction, recovery, and spiritual growth. We use this power to transform ourselves and our world through intentional thoughts, words, and actions. So karma is how we become addicted. Karma is also how we recover. So karma is totally impersonal. Karma is not a being. It's not, it's not the expression of a being. It is simply a law that you can live either in harmony with, you can act, you, the, you can take responsibility as the third aspect of God that Buddhadasa talks about, says we should, or you cannot take responsibility. Karma doesn't care. Karma doesn't have feelings. It's up to us to take the actions. And nothing will happen if we don't do anything. It's not enough to wish for things. It's not enough to pray for things. It's not enough to turn our will and our life over to someone or something. We have to take the actions both in, in, on all those levels, thoughts, words, actions, <coughs> deeds, let's say, to separate the word actions out, thoughts, words, and deeds. So that's 
one of the laws. Well, the, the truth of suffering is an aspect of nature. It's just the way it is. The higher power of suffering is the energy of craving and resistance that's cre that creates struggle in our world. Its power reveals the ways we need to change and inspires our efforts to overcome internal and external adversity. It evokes the powers of acceptance, compassion, and forgiveness. So suffering, which is typically thought of as a negative quality, when viewed in this way, is actually what inspires us to change. If everything is fine, why would you change? That would be foolish. It's only when there is difficulty that we change. So it's not just that, it, it, sometimes that idea is presented as though uh, we should be smart enough to change before we're suffering. But why, that doesn't make any sense. If you're not suffering, why should you be going out and trying to change? You, you're probably doing it right if you're not suffering. Quotes around right. <laughs> so the, the suffering inspires us. It show, first of all, it shows us what needs to change, right? It's one of the things that I've read about depression. The, uh, some of the research around depression says make, one of the evolutionary purposes of depression is to show us that there's a problem in our lives that needs to be changed. You know? It's not just God out to get us. <laughs> so suffering shows us what needs to change, and because it's unpleasant, it inspires us to change. This is a higher power. You can't get away from suffering, have you noticed? Well, actually, you can. According to the Buddha, that's what he was all about, was getting away from suffering. So, and not getting away isn't quite the right word. But, you know, the Buddha had a bad back. And he got old and died. So that fundamental aspect of suffering, of just in a body, it's going to be uncomfortable. Um, out of that, it also, this power evokes acceptance, it evokes compassion, it evokes forgiveness. All of these things grow out of suffering. A few more of the keys, because I'll just, to, just to say that what, I've, what I'm defining as God in this book is karma, the three characteristics of suffering, impermanence, not self, and the eightfold path, love, faith, and spiritual awakening. I think that's all of them. I have my table of contents here. Oh, presence and group. So it's more than we can cover tonight, <laughs> to say the least. Um, But I want to talk uh, uh, sort of about some of the, uh, the different examples. So uh, another um, aspect of the 
nature element of God. Right? Nature, laws of nature, responsibilities, fruits. Uh, the higher power of impermanence. The higher power of impermanence is the energy of change that continuously transforms us and our world. Engaging this power helps us see through the illusion of solidity, showing us the futility of clinging and the frailty of life. This power inspires us to let go and to deeply engage life as it is in each moment. So the, the power of impermanence is just that it keeps changing everything. I mean, it's so, it's so powerful that, you know, there's things on this planet now walking around and building things and having thoughts and consciousness. And a few billion years ago, all there was was a single cell, you know? And it's really impermanence, time, change, that allowed that to happen, to go from that to this. That's how powerful impermanence is. If things weren't impermanence, impermanent, well, I, it depends where it all started. It would, we'd all, everything would be just where it all started, right? which we don't know what that is. But this wouldn't be here. <laughs> this is all the result of impermanence. It inspires us to let go, right? Because when you see that it's all changing all the time, you realize I can't hold on. And letting go is the fundamental spiritual action that we need to take. Because it's the clinging that causes suffering. So, uh, so this is just so key, is seeing impermanence moment by moment. And of course our mind is built to see it just the opposite. So it's not easy to see. So our responsibilities, to move to the, the third aspect of God, our responsibilities. We can say uh, the Eightfold Path is our responsibilities. So the Eightfold Path is meant to align us with karma, with the law of karma. This is what the Buddha is trying to do. He's, he figured out how things work. And then he gave us this roadmap for how to, how to do it. Um, so the higher power of mindfulness, one of the key elements of the Eightfold Path. The higher power of mindfulness is the power of attention and non-reactivity. It opens us to wisdom and insight through clear seeing. Mindfulness is the foundation of all change as it reveals the truth of the way things are internally and externally. So it's through mindfulness that we see the truth, that we are able to see impermanence, that we are able to see suffering, that we are able to see the law of karma. So it's the, that, this is why it's such a central and, and key element to the path. Without this, there's no possibility of change. And when I say change here, I'm talking about spiritual change. I'm not talking about the change, the continuous change of impermanence. So maybe that should be edited. If we don't have this, if we don't have this starting point, there's no opportunity to change. This is why the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous, so we, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. That word admitting 
is actually a moment of seeing. Because that admission comes because we see, because mindfulness has, has been aroused to the point of seeing addiction and seeing the suffering, seeing that clinging is causing suffering. So, uh, you know, the ultimate fruit then, the fourth aspect, is spiritual awakening, which is what the 12 steps bring us to and what Buddhism brings us to. Spiritual awakening, um, I know when I encountered that word, I thought, wow, you can get enlightened through the steps? And, And then I thought, Oh, these people don't know what they're talking about. This isn't real spiritual awakening. This is just some kind of alcoholic spiritual awakening. You know? <laughs> but I've come to see each of the steps, actually, as a spiritual awakening. This, the step says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, And I always took that to mean that after you go through all 11 steps, you'll have a spiritual awakening. But I don't understand it that way anymore. I understand each of the steps as being, potentially at least, a spiritual awakening in and of itself. (coughs) Step one is a transformative insight, as I said the other night. It is a spiritual awakening. It might not feel very good. It might not feel like an awakening, but it is. Certainly, step three is a spiritual awakening. Certainly, writing an inventory is a spiritual awakening. Making amends is a spiritual awakening. All of these are awakenings. Uh, Again, Ajahn Buddhadasa talks about little nirvanas. He says that actually, we think of nirvana as this you know, maybe you think of it as some place or some distant, you know, achieve, perhaps unattainable or perhaps attainable goal if we meditate enough. But he says, actually, every day you have little moments of nirvana in moments when you just let go briefly. He said, if we didn't do that, we'd actually, the stress of existence would actually be overwhelming otherwise. That each moment, each time we kind of, oh, okay. All right, now I'm going to, you know, we kind of, just in that little space in there, that that's a little taste of nirvana. I don't know if that's true, but there's a wisdom in it. Um, and, and part of the wisdom in it is to not set ourselves apart from nirvana, to not think of spiritual awakening as something distant and unattainable or perhaps attainable, but don't know when. (laughs) So if we see spiritual awakening in this way, we can see that spiritual awakening is a power that's already in our lives. And just in the same way that these other qualities are our higher powers. When we have those moments, we are having moments of awakening and that that they also guide us and inspire us. Free us. 
And the topic of God, of course, is infinite. A problem I realized as I was trying to write a book about God and kept telling the editor that I just thought of something else that needed to go in. <laughs> and this afternoon I thought of something else that needed to go in, but she won't let me change it anymore. Um, so, um, and we can certainly talk about the. Uh, you can say that the larger question about God, the the question that is unanswerable, is what is all this? How did karma? come to be? How did impermanence come to be? How did suffering become woven into the universe as just a natural thing? That's the mystery. And it's of no interest to me, actually. I couldn't care less. But I have to acknowledge it. Um, because this is where I think people tend to go with the question of God. Oh, it's something vast out there that I can't understand. And who knows? Who knows who created the universe? My answer to that is, who cares? And that was, I'm in good company because that's basically what the Buddha said. He said, that's, is that going to help you be free from suffering? No. What's going to help you to be free from suffering is to understand the Dharma, understand how the world works and then work with it. Understand nature, understand the laws of nature, then perform your part in relation to that, which is not always clear, <laughs> obviously. That's mysterious. You are learning to, you are teaching yourself to meditate, but on a deeper level, you are teaching yourself the truth. You are trying to find the truth so that you can know what to do next, so that you know what God's will is. And we can never know that exactly. But with these wise guides we've had, we can get some really good hints and some good basic frameworks. When we see that these elements of the Dharma are powers, I think the reason it, that's interesting to me is because it allows me to make a shift in my relationship to the Dharma. It's no longer just something that's interesting or something that kind of opens me or inspires me, but it's actually a guide. And it also really clarifies the steps. Because when we turn our will and our lives over to the care of the Dharma, it's very clear what we have to do. We're not expecting some magical results to come because we've let, we're just saying, okay, God. We are making a commitment to something. We're taking refuge 
in Buddha Dharma Sangha. When we take step seven, when we humbly ask God to remove our defects of character, what we are doing, according to Buddha Dasa, is we are activating the law of karma. What he says is we're beseeching the law of karma through our actions, not merely with our prayers. So when we're asking God, asking God is a metaphor. It's actually not a literal term. The Bible says the same thing. Ask, knock, and you will, and God will answer. And when it says that, it's not, it's not saying just say some words. We ask God through our actions. And, it's, and our actions are practicing mindfulness, practicing the precepts, practicing right speech, practicing right livelihood, practicing concentration, practicing effort, have, developing right view, developing right intention. Our actions are following the Eightfold Path. Very clear. It's very simple. That's God, according to me. <laughs> so, this is what I call Dharma God. And I know that it's not going to satisfy everybody. But I hope that it will inspire some and bring some relief from, for some who <coughs> struggled with the language of the steps and really be an inspiring way to practice the Dharma. Uh, and it's really an attempt to separate this idea of theism from non-theism and to drop those ideas. According to Buddha Dasa, theistic religions have the Dharma in them. It's just covered over by the surface language. And he also says that a Dharma religion like Buddhism has God in it, but it just doesn't use that language. So this is also a way to bring together these disparate traditions in, in a way that we can have a sense of um, something authentic, something that's not based on magical thinking or, or even metaphorical thinking, but that is acceptable to this time and this place. In 1939, America was a Protestant country. And the language of the Bible was completely acceptable to the great majority of people. Seventy years later, we're no longer that. And there's a huge minority that can't accept this language anymore. So we're in this period of transition. Karen Armstrong, who wrote The History of God, says that during periods of transition, when the, when the old definitions of God lose their meaning, atheism becomes 
the transitional state. That in fact Christians were called atheists by pagans at the time of early Christianity. So we're in this transitional state. And my hope is that we can have a God now that makes sense to us, that makes sense to this highly educated culture that we live in, that, that's not willing anymore to accept magical and childish versions of God. Because there's a tremendous suffering in our culture because people have lost God and haven't found a replacement. So just to close, I want to read a poem. And this was the, I was using this originally as the title of my book, but I decided that it didn't tell you very much about the book. I just thought it was a nice title. And it's from Kabir. It's called The Breath Inside the Breath. Are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. You will not find me in stupas, not in Indian shrine rooms, nor in synagogues, nor in cathedrals, not in masses, nor kirtans, not in legs winding around your own neck, nor in eating nothing but vegetables. When you really look for me, you will see me instantly you will find me in the tiniest house of time. Kabir says, student, tell me, what is God? It is the breath inside the breath. When you really look for me, you will see me instantly. You will find me in the tiniest house of time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.